the music is the ultimate complement to the moment, I feel like. Yeah, um, yeah. M- music only exists in the present. Yeah. Because no matter, even if you're remembering it, you're remembering something and it's spooling in your mind at that very moment. In a very mm. analytical way yeah. that it wasn't meant to be yeah. digested. A- any reflection is just a portal to the present again, in a yeah. sense. Yeah, it's an yeah. interesting way to look at it. Becoming Egyptian. Welcome, welcome to another Becoming Egyptian episode. I'm joined here by my co-host. Yes. Session, long-time co-host. It's been three episodes now. Yeah, this is and the fourth. This fourth. is the fourth, yes. And this is our first proper, proper um, technical yeah. episode, I guess you could say. We've got our first official guest. Um, this is Dr. Um, Gregory Camp. He's a senior lecturer here at uh, the University of Auckland. Um, about as good as they come, about as proficient as they come. <laughs> Um, yeah, we're really glad you could join us. Thank you so much. I'm genuinely. glad I could be here. Yeah, really. We're yeah. really grateful. Um, I guess I sort of know Gregory from uh, university myself. I did economics and finance back in uni, but I also had um, sort of a general education class doing music. And he was my lecturer teaching us introduction to Western music, I believe it was, a couple years ago. Um, I remember really enjoying that class and yeah, not only having a lot to take away from it, but also enjoyed his teaching style and the way he approached the sort of curriculum and everything. And yeah, decided it'd be fun to have a nice chat, um, talk about things here and there. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I um, am. Anything to add to that as an intro? Nothing to add. Was there anything we missed from your introduction? Is there anything uh, more that no, you No, I think that covers it. Any credentials you'd like to mention? Um, I'm also the School of Music's Director of Research at the moment, mm-hmm. having been Director of Postgrad for a few years, I've switched into yeah. a new job. I also am the Artistic Director of our Opera Scenes program, so I, I direct a production of Opera Scenes each year right. for that. Is yep. that here as well? In yeah, the uni- at the university. Yeah. Awesome. Which of those do you like the most? Uh, well, it's, it's all part of the job, really. It's d- yeah. different elements of, of right. things. Okay, yeah, so you sort of need all of those to find that nice balance and sort of get your fix musically, do you mm-hmm. find? Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the, there's the creative side with the directing. I also sing in a lot of choirs, uh, so there's that musical outlet plus the teaching and the research, and yeah. even sometimes the admin side of it is fun. Yeah? Usually not, but sometimes. Mm. In terms of getting some nice downtime and to yourself, do you mean? or um, Admin, like administration yeah, yes. filling out forms. And you, you enjoy all of that? Sometimes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, you said you had a book a book coming out next week. Would I do. Look? It's uh, it's called Linguistics for Singers. It's kind of a manual or a, a textbook about languages for classical singers and um, conductors and pianists as well. So wow. it, it goes through uh, English, French, German, and Italian, which are the major languages that classical singers have to sing in and looks at the way the the sound systems work the way that poetry in those languages work and a bit about the structure of the languages to help singers make their way through the texts that they're singing does it focus on any particular period in music um mostly sort of 18th century 19th century core repertoire right would that be sort of your favorite as well just to explore uh well my doctorate was actually on monteverdi who's a 17th century composer right and my current work is more on film music uh which is more recent so yeah. the the focus of the books well the repertoire in the book is between those two things yeah um so it's not really what i spend most of my time studying and writing about and thinking about but mm. it's mm. uh but it does all go into the same 
big machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. What was, the, what was the title of the book? Linguistics for, th- for Singers. Linguistics for Singers. Yeah, awesome. Right, no, that's a good title as well. Well, not very exciting, but it does, it does <laughs> but what it says on the tin. Good yeah. textbooky title. The person yeah. who picks it up knows they want to know about that, and yeah. so it directs them into it, I guess. Yeah, there's yeah. no fluff or anything there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, what about just your background growing up and stuff? What led you into this whole world? And what was, was there like one moment where you're like, yeah, I want to devote my life to music now, whether it's studying mm-hmm. or exploring, or was it just sort of a cascade of events? Uh, well, my mother is a choir director, so I grew up with having music around me all the time. Mm. So there wasn't a single moment where I thought, oh, music is what I want to do, yeah. because I don't remember ever having, being without music there in front of me, in my ears. Yeah. Um, I wasn't sure really until I went to university that I was going to be a musicologist. Uh, actually, I, I went away kind of for music for a while and did a conjoint degree with international relations and music. Uh, but the diplomatic scene didn't seem like it was really what I wanted to do. Yeah. So mm. I, when I went into grad school, that was just in music. Right. Okay. That's really different to me in session because for us, it was like, well, we approached music very differently initially when we got into it. Yeah. A bit embarrassing. We met, we met, the way we met each other is we joined a band uh. together on N- NZ Bands, which is where you find uh, these little band, like social media for bands. And yeah. um, I found Sid and he wanted to be like Dave Grohl. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to be like Kurt Cobain. And yeah. uh, so we... And we, so we had the whole tortured artist trope running uh-huh. deeply between us. Um, and uh, I thought it was cool to not learn any mu- music theory. And so I ran with it. And then I realized I just didn't know anything about music and it was just getting a bit annoying. So then I gave up. <laughs> I gave up. Yeah, and dramatically so. It all came to a halt one day when he realized that you do need to sort of catch up a little bit on the sort of technical <laughs> front to do the whole, you know, yeah, what you say, cultural figure, icon moment thing. You need to know the theory before you drop the theory. And that was my <laughs> biggest mistake because I thought yeah. I could drop the theory before knowing it. So, uh, yeah. And yeah. I guess just our general approach was sort of from classic rock and that sort of post-Elvis period. And so mm-hmm. very different to the some of the... I guess the epochs you've mentioned, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I guess are we still in that world? I'm not sure. The the whole post Elvis. No, I'm not in that world now. I like One Direction. <laughs> <laughs> so drastic change. I've sort of floated in and out between very contemporary pop music and sort of the classic symphonies. I've been mm-hmm. trying to do a deeper dive into those. But that I sort of see as less recreational and more for my own education. There's just so much to learn and derive from that and. You can do it endlessly, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you probably have a lot yeah, of experience the, with that. Well, yeah, and, and the more I study about music, the more I find that I don't know. Mm, because yeah. they're all, there's just so much repertoire out there. Yeah. So much music has been written over the centuries. Yeah, but that's motivating, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah. I think you have to be that kind. Like, we've often described this as um, the more you know, the bigger the unknown, 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 unknown landscape mm-hmm. sort of shifts and increases. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, for some people, I guess that's daunting. We f- tend to find it motivating. I mm-hmm. guess we're inquisitive that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's why I'm an academic, uh, yeah. because I, in, my job allows me to explore all of this stuff. Yeah. And I get paid to do it. It's kind of an ideal job yeah. for someone like me. Yeah. Uh, no. Who likes to follow all of these directions and see where, where I end up. Hmm. So, so you mentioned that music was sort of all around you when you were growing up mm-hmm. and it wasn't really a fixed point when you decided, okay, this is what I want to do. Um, if you weren't doing this, what would the sort of second thing have been, do you think? Uh, probably would have been international relations. Okay. So I'd have taken the, the foreign service exam in the US and 
probably been sent to the Middle East or something like that and trying to deal with you know, stamping people's passports and wow okay that sort of thing. it's completely 180 from music yeah well when I went into it I thought I was going to be able to do like cultural diplomacy and that kind of thing where mm. you're dealing with the arts yeah but the reality of of the foreign service in the US at least is that it's a it's a long while before you can do the fun stuff you I have see. to you have to do the hard yards in yeah. the embassies in the consulates how long does that normally take until you get to the uh, fun stuff oh i it, i think it depends on who who you are and where you where your contacts are who mm. you know oh yeah um, okay just a lot of bureaucracy yeah have. lots of bureaucracy yeah when I realized that I probably wasn't going to get stationed in Paris as a first job, I realized, well, maybe not for me. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's something you still might explore at some point or is it? Uh, yeah, I don't think so. No. <laughs> it, it does inform uh, the work that I do here in teaching and, and research because having that social science background, studying political science, studying international relations mm. is really useful for studying the arts because it, gets you to think about not only like a score on the page, yeah. just not the notes on the page, but where they come from and what they mean and how they connect to other things and the, the people who put the notes on the page, people yeah, who perform yeah. them. All that like almost that. sounds like a necessary prerequisite, right? Rather than mm -hmm. a bonus, you can't really study the yeah. score on the page without the cultural and political significance right. in the background. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just yeah. want to check the camera quickly. I'll come back. Yeah, all good. Yeah, we, we noticed on your um, description that you're a musicologist. Mm -hmm. Could you just explain how that differs from music general, how you know someone on the street might just think of music? Yeah, well, music is the biggest sort of blanket, and there are all of these different specialisms within music. You can be a mm -hmm. composer, you can be a performer, uh, you can be a arranger, you can be an orchestrator, or you can be a musicologist. So a musicologist is, is someone who whose job is to study the, the history and other contexts of music. Sometimes that, that is a historical thing, sometimes it's a sociological thing, right. sometimes it's an ethnographic thing. So there are, even within musicology, there are divisions of, of right. what Right, so sort of the wider it. landscape from which that piece arose, would you yeah, say? Yeah, it, it's how does music work, why does it work that way, mm. who made it work that way, mm. how do we okay. perceive it, all that kind of stuff. So, so I guess linguistics would come into that. And mm -hmm. the other thing we noticed and were sort of taken aback by by your description was that you speak four or five languages, is it? Yeah. So does that feed into that very usefully, do you it think? It does, especially studying opera, oh, uh, yeah. which, Italian, which my, definitely. my graduate work was on. Um, if you're going to study a work in a foreign language, you really need to know the language it's in because the translation only takes you so far. Yeah, yeah. It changes it sometimes. The it, translation yeah. can change the entire meaning of something. Yeah, um, yeah. We we actually have had a few discussions about that. Where we read the book. I I don't know if you read the book, The Alchemist, um, where they use certain Arabic words. And the boy, there's the boy, the heroine in the story, travels to this Arabic civilization, and he keeps asking the people to translate the words they're using back to him. And they're telling him, if I translate it, it's going to lose ninety percent of its meaning. Mm -hmm. So. It is extremely beneficial to go back to the source language. Like you're probably not listening to Nietzsche properly by reading it in English. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. And not just um, you've lost some of the meaning, you've probably lost the core essence. And now you're just at danger of misinterpreting it entirely. Yeah, you're reading it, the, the sequential, structural, skeletal meaning of it, but you're not <laughs> getting any of the, the, the flagrance there, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you, you're getting 
and this could be a good thing or a bad thing, you're also getting the translator's personality. Right. As well as, so it's, it's their interpretation of the author's work. Right. I see. And are they, mo are they moderated in doing that, or do they have peers that check uh, their translation? It, it depends on who it is and the publishers and all that. I see. Uh, sometimes the original author will work closely with translators. Mm. Um, for example, like Umberto Eco, the Italian novelist, wrote The Name of the Rose, Foucault's Pendulum, really interesting stuff. Always worked very closely with his translators because right. he was particular about how things should be. Yeah, I can imagine. It would be scary just handing it over to a translator. I mean, essentially mm -hmm. to rewrite the entire story. It's like your baby, yeah. right? You can't <laughs> yeah. just give it away. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you know any examples of where an, a, a translator's opinion has crept into the book? Uh, well, I can't think of specific examples, but I reckon that with someone like Nietzsche, th these very hairy philosophical texts, that's the kind of case where the translator's interpretation is definitely going to color mm. the words that you're reading. I see, yeah. Because Nietzsche has such a particular style, and it's kind of a, a sparse style in a way. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of room for a translator to come in and have to fill it in yes yeah yes, yeah. yeah it's almost particularly ambiguous on purpose from Nietzsche's mm -hmm. like ready to be you know subject to be misinterpreted almost yeah and so the There's interpreter a element to that it's like come, yeah, come and read my work see yeah, what you think yeah, he's Let's daring see. you to, mis to misinterpret yeah <laughs> yeah and then the translator takes on the role of the interpreter yeah. and then the horrors of the 20th century follow <laughs> <laughs> okay now we're probably jumping the gun there <laughs> Um, but yeah, so we were talking earlier about how the language, knowing multiple languages helps in terms of getting sort of a deeper access to the core essence of the work. Mm -hmm. Do you find that having all of this sort of having an analytical mind like you likely do um, sort of takes away from the experience of it at all? Um, you can't turn it off? It's a good question. I, I don't think it takes away from the experience because I find more depth of the experience in analyzing how it works on mm -hmm. a... Mm on a deeper level yeah yeah i think i i highly agree with that and that's the reason i was asking because th there seems to be what i think is a misconception where you either have the technical aspect or you have the ah i'm in the experience and like mm -hmm. the qualitative is here and the technical is here but i don't think it's a trade-off at all mm. do you what do you reckon yeah well do you find you actually enjoy the uh what do you call it the qualitative side more after analyzing it and understanding it further mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, because like take a composer like Mozart, who everybody knows was a genius. Yeah. I think it, he becomes even more of a genius when you understand what makes him a genius, how yes. the music actually works. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It doesn't destroy the magic, for me at least. Yeah, definitely. Well, he was a genius to the people that didn't analyze it and to the people that mm -hmm. did analyze it. So he was a multifaceted <laughs> genius. Yeah. yeah, the layers of his genius are pretty <laughs> insane. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, well, yeah, I guess that's another topic that is sort of relevant. We've been talking about what makes a specific piece of work stand out from the rest. Mm -hmm. And there's obviously the um, sort of the intricacies and like they, they were the first to do this. They were the only person to do this. And, you know, cultural impact and all of these kind of factors tend to come up majorly. Um, is there any one sort of factor do you think that stands out amongst the rest? Like for a great work, this is the one thing it has to do. Open oh, question to both hard, of you. Yeah, that's a hard one. Yeah, because we've we've dedicated an entire episode to trying to figure this out. <laughs> yeah, we, and, our uh, first episode was what is greatness, and by the end mm. we realized we know even less, <laughs> less than we about started. what it is. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it would be uh, interesting to know. There's there's an essay by Italo Calvino, who's an Italian was an Italian 
novelist, essayist, yeah. fabulist, uh, where he tries to answer this question. He's got a list of like 10 things uh, of what makes something a classic. Sounds so dry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But one of them, the one that sticks with me the, the most is that he, it's something like he says, um, a classic is a work that you're never reading, you're always rereading. So even if you're reading it or experiencing it for the first time, you're experiencing it through the many previous layers of experience of that of that work. So Do even you mean how it was interpreted before? Yeah. So if if you come to something like um, the Magic Flute, Mozart's opera, which is one of the most frequently performed things, even if you're going to the opera and seeing that for the very first time, what you're seeing is already going to have been influenced by previous interpretations of it mm. yes what, because of what the singers are doing what the director is doing what the conductor is doing their right. experience goes into that yeah and then whether or not you realize it that's influencing your experience too yeah but it's not watered down it's being watered up almost right <laughs> yeah it's a cumulative effect right that all of these different readings have on the on the work ah I see. Yeah, we did not discuss. We did no. not include that as one Something of our core tenets. Open oh. to infinite interpretation mm-hmm. and accessible through the times. I guess. Yeah, because yeah. if you think about the the things that are classics of literature and music and drama, they are things that with that can stand many different interpretations. Like think about mm. Hamlet. Every time you go and see Hamlet, it's going to be really different. Yeah, but it can work in many many different ways or a book like Moby Dick or the other big classics of literature um, every interpretation is different but the book has all of that in it to be brought out you don't have to stretch too much to to get at those different things yeah well, I, I don't know if this digresses too much from our the core topic, but it seems that it's it's, okay. <laughs> it seems that in in today's time it's a lot harder to strike that greatness that the classical artists were able to strike. I don't know if it's because we haven't had enough time to let the work of today marinate, but it seems that interpretation or opinion in general um, is a lot more shunned upon now. Um, ambiguity is seen as like a bad thing. I've I've seen a lot of a lot of art today missing on the ambiguity side and being quite direct do you feel like there's any contemporary work that might catch the same wind as the mozart pieces in that way where it will continuously get reinterpreted and get better Mm. and things like that is that a possibility today oh i think definitely um on a level we can't know because we, we can't anticipate what the next generations will find in what our generations are creating yes. to take mm. it forward, but because it, it might be something that we really don't expect. Yes, um, it almost has to be right. Yeah, something we don't expect. Yeah, yeah. If, if you set out to make a classic, it's probably not going to work. Yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. a soundbite. Because Mozart, <laughs> yeah, Mozart didn't set out to to write operas and symphonies that would be played two, three hundred years after he died. Right. He was mm. just doing his job. Wagner probably did. But yeah, Wagner. Right. Yeah, he's like, I am the guy to he, save us. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's an exception, mm. in many ways, probably. Right. Yeah. 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 Oh. I just. Uh, yeah, I really like this continuous unfolding aspect of something being a classic. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's here today. It's here for the next generation, yeah. perhaps in a different way and forever. It maintains a certain unfamiliarity for the next person mm-hmm. to uncover, and that unfamiliarity is inf- infinite in a way. Is that intent? Do you, uh, I don't know if these great people have writings on 
how they made these certain things was that intentional for it to be so un like so um you know timeless i know we said like you can't set up to make a classic and make a classic but was there some sort of intention behind this sort of unfamiliarity that they've managed to create uh well again it de it depends on on the person and and especially when they're writing so this the idea of ambiguity as an aesthetic quality that we value is historically contingent it's mm. something that that today we see as a plus if something is ambiguous yeah um, but if you go back to the 18th century they're not really thinking much about that question they have different questions to ask and to try to answer we definitely have sort of superimposed this sort of um, positive element to mm -hmm. this indecipherability which probably wasn't expected or intentional during the time um but now it's like oh there's a mystery and an allure to it all mm -hmm. and that's a good thing apparently it's like yeah. i i can't get to the core of it so it must be something great that you know sacred in some sense because i can't mm -hmm. get to it yeah yeah that's yeah that's definitely um what did you say culturally contingent? culturally contingent yeah so that that's mm -hmm. a romantic idea 19th century romanticism that's where that right. really comes from and then it's hardened even more in the modernist aesthetic and then mm. the postmodernists come in and question it all but still kind of are doing the same thing yeah they think they're shaking up the entire scene in ways yeah. that are far less significant than they actually do mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's sort of the current 21st century story as well right with the artists that we like to lament sort of yeah um yeah people sort of playing into a trope or wanting to seem a certain way rather than being the actual thing um yeah yeah like instead of focusing on just making good music focusing on all the things that you recognize in mozart's work around his music that you think makes it great and focus on those things but everything besides the actual music and in doing so you just miss the entire <laughs> yeah the boat yeah, <laughs> yeah. i don't know if because uh, I, I know that we said they weren't setting out to make these classics but do you know if in the time Mozart was regarded as, I mean, was there a feeling that he would be as timeless as he ended up to be? Um, so I think some would have said yes, but really that doesn't come in until a few decades after he dies. I see. There's a, a music critic, novelist, poet called Itier Hoffmann, um, who was one of the first to write about Mozart in, in the terms that we recognize today as the great timeless <laughs> genius. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's writing like 1810 around then wow uh, but before that mozart was seen often as a bit edgy and a bit uh unsafe in a way right. because his music was so extreme for the time hmm. uh there's and that, that's the thing that um in the movie amadeus they play with it's based on a play by peter schaffer which is um it's a fiction. It, the, the claim is that, that Salieri, a rival composer of Mozart, was somehow involved in his death and poisoned him. Mm. Right. It, not true. <laughs> so it, it's kind of an unforgivable character assassination of Antonio Salieri, who is actually a really interesting that, composer. I think that movie's coming but, out or something, isn't it? Salieri? I don't know. I you don't heard know. it here first. <laughs> so they ruined his reputation so, in that play. Y yeah. But the, the play brings up some very interesting things because it's about the nature of of genius right. seeing mozart as the genius and salieri as the just the craftsman who writes music that maybe is put together well but doesn't have the spark right wow. 
But, yes. that's, but that's very much not the way that an 18th century audience would have seen either of those composers. Okay. How would that have changed? Uh, again, it, it's that E.T.A. Hoffmann thing of Mozart as the timeless genius mm. because his music was, was so different from everything else and yeah. was um, seen by the 19th century as having some kind of ineffable um, quality mm. about it, something you couldn't define something that transcends what a composer like Salieri was doing. Was it, do you think it was provocative in a sort of mm -hmm. mental, like it, was, it forced contemplation? Was that part of the spark, mm -hmm. do you think? I, I think so, because there's, there's so much music in Mozart. The, one of the famous um, things about, his, well, anecdotes, was the emperor, Joseph II, told Mozart that his music had too many notes, mm. uh, which is kind of true. If you look at, <laughs> A Mozart score and analyze it, he's got more changes of harmony, uh, more changes in texture and color in the orchestra than a lot of his contemporaries do. So yeah. there is more to to study, per se, in, in his music. Yeah, but it seems more taxing and so it draws the minimalists away. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. The first sort of thing that comes to mind when you say there's so much to it musically is mm -hmm. the who <laughs> the mm -hmm. band I, I often think of um quadrophenia and yeah. who's next in these sort of classic rock albums and um they're often heralded as um you've got the rhythm section and that's its own story it's its own mm -hmm. narrative and then you've got the song as a whole and that's telling you something it's pushing you a certain direction if mm -hmm. it, especially if it's a rock opera tommy i think it was right? yep. yeah um yeah, and just sort of that being sort of a consistent theme amongst the greats. There's like, you can mm -hmm. focus in on this little part or you can do this. And there's almost like 10 different listens to mm -hmm. that one piece. Yeah. Yeah, yeah as opposed mm -hmm. to the earlier styles of rock that they were, that they got their start in, which yeah. uh, is harmonically and structurally and texturally a lot more simple, but still very good if you've got yeah. someone who can perform it well. The argument being that's what gets you through the door commercially yeah. and then yeah and then you can afford to experiment yeah D do you think there's a um moral or sort of ethical obligation if you are creating a classic however unintentionally to to teach to be didactic and to have a allegorical nature to it because i'm trying to what i've been trying to piece together is the validity of the aestheticism argument is mm -hmm. there because something about it rubs me the wrong way, but also it's so appealing. It's like music should just, or any work of literature should just be fun. It should just be a Sunday pleasure read or a listen, you know? I think there's a soft beauty to that, but it's also running away from something that could be hugely beneficial for the societal, for the collective. Mm -hmm. So wh where do you sort of stand on that distinction? Well, fun is also beneficial. Mm -hmm. Maybe more beneficial than something that sets out to be very serious. Yeah. Um I, I, it's another tricky one. I, I guess I would say that, well, sometimes the, the fun things actually have those layers. We just haven't found them or aren't looking at it in quite the right way. Mm. Um, well, so one of the, the things that I study is Disney, mm -hmm. Disney music, uh, which is one of those fun things. And uh, if I were doing this 20 years ago, people would probably be saying to me, oh, why are you studying that? It's just not any good. It's commercial. It's not interesting. Yeah. But now more of us in musicology are studying that kind of thing because we're interested in why people are so attracted to it. Yeah. How, what 
is it in those texts that draw people in? And th- that can be just as important and just as interesting as a really avant-garde, complex work of art. Yeah. Yeah, why do people keep coming back to it? There has to be some sort of sophisticated reasoning you could put together for why people can't get enough. And mm-hmm. complex reasoning because, yeah, yeah it's clearly what? striking a, a, yeah, a chord. A chord again and again, yeah. 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 And who, who, who has those formulas? Who, who are Disney hiring? And is it just the one formula that's being done on repeat, but just in very um, new ways? It's just the same thing, different flavor, mm. do you think? Is that, a- that, that is part of it. I don't, I don't want to reduce and simplify everything yeah. you've done, but... Well, yeah, well, look at all of the, the remakes that they are doing of, mm. of their animated movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Doing basically the same thing, but a little bit different. Yeah. And then yeah. the classics are also somewhat derivative. One, of, mm-hmm. I think my favorite movie ever is The Lion King. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, saying that to you, yeah. And that's also sort of from the Egyptian stories and Ra and that mm. sort of Seth, Hor- the contendings of Horace and Seth, I think. Mm. And then overlap with, I forget if it's Macbeth or Hamlet, Hamlet. but Hamlet, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this thing that you're like, you think set the scene and then everything flows after that, that mm-hmm. also was just a slightly derivative. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's those archetypal basic plots the the death of a father and how does the son deal with that Mm. yeah 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 well you say that well disney's come up with a live action version of many of the animated um versions and when 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 the music's changed slightly has that change been to intentionally match the live action version so I i don't know what the change is but is it to make it more suited to seeing people now on the screen rather than animated characters Mm, I that might be part of it, but I think it's more about updating it to the tastes as Disney perceives them of right. audiences today versus audiences when the first version was was put out. I see. Yeah, uh, and and also to cinematic um, expectations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when when the soundtrack changes, the picture changes like mm-hmm. yeah, i was watching um guardians of the galaxy the other day and obviously it's this futuristic dystopian intergalactic reality but they're playing these i don't know 80s 90s yeah, yeah sort of classics and it it makes the thing more human it makes mm-hmm. the entire thing feel more human and so you're looking at these alien figures blue people and you're rela- starting to relate to them even though they might have nothing in common with us just because of the score the mm-hmm. soundtrack yeah, yeah. um Although the reasoning is probably more sophisticated than that. <laughs> probably, it? yeah. It's just that's what I draw from it is like, how am I relating to this yeah. beast of a character on the screen? Yeah. I think it's because... Because they're playing Guns and Roses. <laughs> in the background, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, But it, that formula clearly worked because yes. those movies have been so popular and well enough to make sequels out of them and theme park attractions out of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And largely because of the music, because of that connection to real life it makes it less about things happening up in outer space and more more evident that actually it is about us because of that Mm. musical connection right yeah yeah um i think a cookie cutter argument some people sort of make is no that's just people's ever reducing attention spans and it just means we need more and more gloss and more and more wow factor and so this has worked in the past just it works do it again and it'll probably be wow enough to put bottoms on seats in the cinema. So, but that seems too simple, right? That's yeah. So what, um, what some film scholars will tell you, like people who study film form, 
they'll they've shown that these recent action films are actually very demanding on the spectator because of all of the quick cutting mm. uh, from scene to scene to scene. You have to be very quick perceptually to to get what's going on, right? As opposed to films of earlier decades where the takes tend to be longer and the space tends to be much more uh, cohesive. Yeah. So it's just shot reverse shot in a lot of older films. Would the longer takes not demand more from you? Because you can't sort of blink or you can't break frame until the scene changes? Um, well, it demands more of, of the actors because they mm. have to sustain it. Mm. But as a viewer, um, your brain doesn't have to th- rethink the space every few seconds. Yeah. If that right. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. if I've got you in a in a frame, just straight on, I don't have to rethink that. But if I've got you, and then I've got both of you, and then I've got a close up of you, and then a mm-hmm. long shot of you, and then this angle, I have to keep thinking. Quick how micro. Does this all, yeah. How yeah. does this all make sense together? Interesting. So maybe it maybe it's to do with a shorter attention span in that we get nervous if we have to stay with one thing for too long, but there's then a payoff because it becomes more demanding in a different way of our perception. Yeah. yeah, yeah. More of an emotional investment as well, just having to stay. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what's it? Akira Kurosawa, um, Japanese filmmaker, Japanese, uh, yeah. Is it Seven Samurai? Seven. Mm-hmm. There's this one shot where the two samurais are on opposite ends of this, what battlefield would have been in their village. And uh, you just have to stare at them, prepare in one shot. Mm. And it's so I, I don't I can't remember if if you remember was there music over that I haven't actually seen that movie yeah because the reason I ask is because in these long sort of standoff scenes where it's one shot sort of a theatrical thing where it's the actor's job not the director well the director obviously the cinematographer they all set up the beautiful picture mm-hmm. but the actors really have to unfold the story now because there's no editing to help them out mm-hmm. how much does music t- tell like aid the actors there because um it's going to play a big part in, again, the, the feelings that the audience receives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, it, I would say that it doesn't aid the actors in a real sense unless the music was being played on the set when they were shooting it. Yeah. But it does change our perception of what the actors are doing. Yes, sorry, yeah, yeah, that's what I was, yeah. 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 yeah because if it's music that is very repetitive and kind of building attention that's going to make you feel more and more nervous. But if it's a music, a musical style that has more variety, uh, it allow, maybe allows you to sit with it in a different kind of a way. Mm. Uh, so an- another example, um, a similar one to what you're describing would be Stanley Kubrick and a lot of his work, like yeah. Barry Lyndon especially, yeah. has all of these very static, long-held shots, often with music, like maybe just a timpani, bum, bum. Yeah. Bum, 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 that repeats over and over and over again yeah. and helps you to feel that long duration yeah. because the music is repeating. Yes, right. Yeah. Who, who did Stanley uh, Kubrick work with for his uh, musical? Uh, he often used pre-existing music. Uh, yeah. with, for Barry Lyndon, he, he worked with a composer, Leonard Rosenman, who arranged music by Purcell and Schubert and a few other composers. Yeah. Um, to make it fit the scene. Yes. But 
in like 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, famously, there was a whole score written for that by Alex North, a, a piece of new music, but Kubrick threw it all out <laughs> and, and used what had been his temp track instead with Ligeti and Strauss and... Um, who else is on that? A few other composers. Yeah, I just remember the ending of 2001 A Space Odyssey where the, the screen is just changing colors yeah. <laughs> and intense music in the mm-hmm. background. What, yeah. have, you see, have you seen 2001? Mm-hmm. What, what did you think of that yeah. final scene? I mean, uh, <laughs> what do you well, think the intention was there? <laughs> just oh, to get no, objective I, about the subjectivity of it. Yeah, I, I think it goes on for too long. Um, <laughs> it does. It's probably my least favorite Kubrick film, 2001. Some, yeah. There's some parts of it that are amazing, but that that last part, it's just a bit much. Yeah, if you're not prepared for that and you're going to go yeah. you're going to be entertained, I don't I think you would have yeah, you would have left mm-hmm. a yeah. long time ago. I, I love the scenes on the spaceship. Yeah. In that in the earlier. Yeah. Um, it's a Kachaturian piece that plays through through some of that when the astronauts are just running and doing their daily day-to-day things yeah i feel like that was an example of a guy trying to make a classic maybe he was forcing it yeah (laughs) kubrick is another of those artists who i think had a finger on posterity yeah yeah because it seems that he wanted that um that sort of never-ending unfamiliarity aspect or this mm. ambiguity that's just completely <laughs> yeah uncontrollable where who else i feel has that i was just thinking of the last time i was actually wowed watching a film and that was probably the new avatar yeah just like not story but visually i was thinking wow like it's 2022 or three i think it came out this year and i've seen something visually that's actually taken me aback how is this even possible you know like it's 23 years into the 21st century how am i still seeing something i didn't think i could see on screen yeah but i do think james cameron is one of those as well where he's like no it, this thing has to last for ages you <laughs> yeah. know but it's worked for kubrick and it's worked for james cameron we we yeah. still watch titanic we Endlessly. still watch 2001 yeah i've yeah. got like four or five books on kubrick up there <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah no. that ending scene in titanic right he mm-hmm. probably knew that jack was jack could have fit on that little log thing rose was on and people are going to talk about it and so he mm-hmm. left that little hole in the plot on purpose mm. yeah otherwise it just would have just it would have made too much sense like he really yeah, confident yeah. this thing <laughs> we don't he want really coherence. needs to die yeah <laughs> now now it's yeah then you have to question. go and watch the movie again to see what how it leads up to that now that you know where it goes yeah 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 yeah. but but musically i remember the last time i was wowed was you'll obviously be familiar with baby driver Mm -hmm. right when it came out and i was like that first opening scene it's two or three minutes i just kept watching it again and again thinking what like there's so much going on it's like that mozart Mm -hmm. thing you said i can just watch it again and again yeah yeah Yeah, i I use that in classes that opening that's probably where i learned about it from yeah yeah oh yeah maybe here we go going back to the classes circle (laughs) Yeah, uh, I was I was thinking about earlier um, when I when I go back on some of my personal memories, none of them contain any music. I don't remember any like moments with people um, that contains any music. But then when the time comes for me to hear music, when I hear it, it uncovers a certain memory. Mm-hmm. So it's um, mem- uh, music inhabits this unconscious space that I just can't put a finger on because yeah. I don't ever think about it until i hear it again what is so special about music that this happens i mean what is it about these um ordered notes that make such an impact on us but yet 
it's not like on the conscious side of things it's it tends to be lying in the unconscious mm-hmm. um yeah i don't know <laughs> yeah that, <laughs> that was just that's on my a, mind. it's a question for the, the ultimate question yeah, yeah about how it works that way uh but uh, the other senses are similar you can smell something and it can take you back you can taste something and mm. it can yeah can bring a memory up but music is especially powerful yes it seems to be um what um so i guess sort of on that front what role do you think music plays this is another impossible question to answer but just lay the ground however you feel but um what role do you think music plays in a person's meaning in life individually if any uh well it depends on the person um because we all have such different musical experiences based on where we grew up, when we grew up, who we were around. Um, so me growing up with with a choir director mom, uh, music was kind of everywhere all the time. It wasn't something I ever had to go and seek out, really. It came to me. Mm. Whereas people who didn't have music in the family might not, well, wouldn't have had that same kind of experience. So music to them might be something we could even say something more special because it's not something that you take for granted I wouldn't say I take music for granted but yeah. in a way I do because it's, I've always had it Yeah, yeah. the way that someone who came to it later might might not but it's not, it's not lost any of its magic or wow factor no. for you at all no. it's ever deepening still mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what about you? music meaning in life through music meaning in life through music not sure again like like i said it it when i think back on any of my lessons or memories or thoughts none of it contains music but yet the presence of music comes like when i hear the music in the moment it seems to be something that affects the moment so heavily not the past or the future it seems Mm -hmm. to affect the present moment and i think that's what and obviously as humans we seem we're obsessed with the moment sometimes and the the music is the ultimate complement to the moment i feel like yeah Um, Yeah. music only exists in the present yeah because no matter even if you're remembering it you're remembering something and it's spooling in your mind at that very moment in a very analytical way that it wasn't meant to be digested any reflection is just uh portal to the present again in a yeah. sense yeah it's an yeah. interesting way to look at it um uh do, do you think that music is another impossible question <laughs> but do you think it's the highest art form um for say introspection or self-exploration that mm-hmm. kind of thing well i i have to say yes because you I'm a musicologist. you'll lose your job but, well but it, but if i were a painter i would probably say painting is that yeah. well, what would but, you say sid I have no idea, and that's why I'm asking, because I came across this video the other day on YouTube saying that um, arguing for the primacy of music and the main reason they were using was it's immediate, so it's a reflection of the will, perhaps in the Nietzschean sense, and um, other sort of 19th century thinkers uh, might agree with that. Um, It's not representational, so there's no recurring patterns that you see. It's not like a painting where a painter is trying to replicate something that exists in a structured form in an Apollonian sense in the world already it's purely just there's no yeah intermediate phase it's just coming straight from wherever it's coming from and there's no Mm -hmm. translation in the middle and so this person was arguing for that being a reason as to why it affords opportunity to Mm self-reflect yeah 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 I feel like um, also new music sometimes that I haven't 
again going back to how i feel like it plays this critical role in the unconscious um i sometimes new music that i haven't heard before when i do hear it then brings up a certain feeling within me that i may not have ever felt before just from that one song and it's a new song so it's not it, I'm not thinking about when I heard it before or whatever. It's mm. brand new and now all of a sudden a new feeling. And um, I don't know how... We, we spoke about how much... the Where the intention was from the musicians themselves. They weren't trying... A lot of them weren't trying to make classics or whatever. But um, is there some sort of... Uh, this is another impossible one. But how... Is it possible that these the the music was just using the artist as a vessel to be produced for the public? Because some music seems to have this divine um, characteristic to it that just can't be explained. Like the fact that I'm listening to a new song, never heard it before. I, it doesn't associate with me in any ways, and yet it's bringing up these certain emotions. Um, sometimes I can't help but feel like these musicians, uh, as much of an intention as they may have had were just simply vessels for something much more much greater than the musician themselves is that something you've ever looked into or no i i'm not really into the transcendental arguments yeah. kind of thing because i i see music as a as a creation of individuals at a specific time in a specific place yes. based on what's mm. what's around them but i think when we think about music aesthetically or as a a creative abstraction that can be a really useful way to think of it as the especially if you're a composer um, it might help you to think of writing music if you think of it as the music exists out there i just need to find it yes but then for, and, and you feel like that's not the case it, well as a creative artist with that hat on i might do yes but with my analytical hat on i wouldn't yes i see well, how do you feel about that said Yes or no? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I got away with both. <laughs> yeah, um, something about me is second inside um, by this argument, but yet I think it's true that all creation is discovery. Yeah. And I something inside me is like, oh, that just feels so icky, but I do think that's the truth and there is no such thing as creation and it's just... Um, <laughs> It exists in an abstract hyperspace and we're just waiting <laughs> to discover it like Christopher Columbus or something. Um, but yeah, I was actually wondering, was it a conscious decision for you, Gregory, to stay away from the transcendental side and all of those arguments and just stick to the here and now? Um, I, yeah, I think so. If, if I think about the, the things that I've written about music um, mm. from my doctorate into the, into the books, they are all about people doing things whether yeah. it's composers yeah. or directors or actors or uh, listeners even. Um, Interesting. And that, but that's partly just because of how I was trained and, and the generation of musicologists that I belong to. We've moved away from that romantic idea of the, of the transcendental mm, creation. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. And we, yeah. since the nineties, musicology has been more interested in, the how and the why yeah i, I guess the when you get too much into that stuff it's like with the romantics it's like this music piece is like a guidebook on life and you know mm -hmm. this is the be all end all and it becomes too um prescriptive in a sense mm -hmm. and yeah that can be hugely overwhelming especially in a conservative society in 19th century russia or something like that mm -hmm. yeah in the in the contemporary musicology um scene are there any 
researchers focusing on the more transcendental? Uh, there are a few. There's uh, one interesting recent turn is what what has been called carnal musicology or corporeal musicology, which is all about the body and the okay. relation of the body and music. Yes. So what happens to the body when it plays music, uh, or when when it creates music? And like if you're a cellist, what does that mean when you're sitting there with your cello? Is is it the cello acting upon you, or are you acting upon the cello? Ah, okay. Those kinds of things, which is not, which is a little bit more abstract than yeah. the contextual studies that a lot of us do. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. I think it's interesting to study both sides, uh, whichever mm. side you pick, because obviously, as humans, it's, it's always interesting to study the human side of <laughs> music mm. and why yeah. humans make. It. And then it's also, and then being the conscious beings that we are, we we get complicated and we want to learn the abstract stuff. Mm. Yeah. And and that does go right back to the 15th century, 16th century, when they're writing about the music of the spheres yeah. uh, and trying to define what that means. But that, that idea was that music already exists and the musician is just finding it and putting yes. it on paper. It really removes the artist's label from the musician and makes yeah. them sort of just a, another laborer. A almost. pregnant like person. Your job... Yeah, you're you're the midwife, right? You're the yeah. one who just brings yep. forth what's to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like Socrates, the idea's midwife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but a lot of these artists tend to be really uh, aside from their craft, tend to be extremely interesting people mm-hmm. as well. So, yeah. um yeah, even if we are looking at it from that lens, besides the the art that they've created they seem like they would have ended up being great regardless just because some of these yeah. people seemed inclined to greatness there's, there's some yeah. correlation between that artist and just being eccentric in general and on the periphery of society and mm-hmm. you know hovering here and there um i was also thinking of sort of the societal uh landscape and what kind of things we could be doing collectively to breed a great artist mm-hmm. Um, one thing that came to mind was having reserved sections in society that everything goes and that's where the artists would reside. It would sort of be like a 100% tolerance, 100% this and that. And it's, you know, and that would naturally select for the right kind of people. And you'd get people who are naturally feeling, you know, disillusioned and disenchanted with their general life. And, do you think there are like specific moves we could make, whether it was legal or just in the micro, in the here and now, um, in our day-to-day lives, that could help breed the next great whoever? I think it's mostly just about exposure to the arts. It's having a space in every school mm. for musical lessons, art lessons, yeah, all of that kind of accessibility. Stuff. Would accessibility, you say? Yeah. yeah, because who knows what art we're missing out on because people weren't exposed to the possibility yeah. of having it. Yeah, wasted talent. Is there yeah. any great work of art, not necessarily musical, that did more damage than good, but we heralded it up anyway? Uh, well, you, we can talk about the, the propaganda art of the Soviet Union or Hitler's mm. Germany, uh, which yeah. set out to convey uh, an idea that is repugnant to yeah. us. Aside from the ones that were commissioned by totalitarian dictators, maybe. (laughs) What? Yeah, I I can't think of any. No, I can't either. (laughs) Uh, To me, but that's the thing, right? With greatness, we sort of associate a positive charge, but I'm not sure Mm -hmm. if that's even necessarily the case. 
Yeah, there's an essay by Richard Shreskin, who's a recently died but very famous musicologist, called The Danger of Music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he writes about, well, the danger of music and how there are pieces of music that, that maybe are so powerful that they can be misused or misconstrued or misinterpreted. Mm. Uh, Do any come to mind for you? Um, well, I I wouldn't really agree with him on that point, but one of Tereskin's bugbears is Karl Orff. Uh, his most famous piece is Carmina Burana, which uh, uh, big choral orchestral piece, Oh, Fortuna, Velutruna, uh, you'd recognize it if you heard it. Uh, but that piece was written in Nazi Germany, and according to Tereskin and a number of other musicologists, uh, encodes a lot of those totalitarian ideas within it. Mm. But because it's kind of one of those greatest hits pieces, we listen to it without thinking about that side of it. And he's not right. saying we should ban it outright or anything like that. He's saying that we need to think about the 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 context of its creation yeah. Yeah. when we hear it and then decide if we actually want to hear it or not. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, it seems like there's there's, there's many uh, examples of art that cr- were created in what we would think of as bad contexts, mm-hmm. but I don't know if there's any art that's bad with a B A like a capital B for the yeah. for society. Um, yeah. Because yeah, it's impossible to strip it of its context and just look at it as if it were in a vacuum or something. Right? Yeah, because if you strip the context, then like you say, that might have been. It's just we take it for granted what that is, and then. It's great yeah. for learning, though, if you're just learning notes and harmony and the technical side. It's like, yeah, just look at the work. Just look at the work and nothing else. But when you're actually studying it overall, you need everything around it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same like um, like if you're looking at leadership without context and you could study Hitler without context. Yeah. How, mm-hmm. how to get to the top of a hierarchy. Look yeah. at Hitler. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anything else, don't. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I, to answer the question, I don't know any that without the context is capital b bad what, what, what about pieces of work that you guys liked that you no longer like mm. uh, the most drastic 180 <laughs> well one example for me would be andrew lloyd weber the yeah. like phantom of the opera yeah, yeah. yeah although i've started to kind of in a weird way come around to it uh but when i was a, a kid i loved all of his stuff was obsessed mm. with it uh but then by the time i got to uni hated it with a fiery passion now i've i can find the middle ground i can see under understand better what i'd like about it what i don't like about it and why but that that's an example of a yeah. shifting shifting tastes what caused the initial uh, disruption with the love um i think it was learning about other operas and other musicals that mm. were that I, I found to be much more interesting and much more deep in their their yeah. dramatic sensibilities and their musical craft and all of that yeah so this was sort of like the gateway first stage you sort of had mm-hmm. to go through that is it? yeah yeah hmm. yeah how yeah. about yourself that you're going to tell us about nirvana now <laughs> that i once loved and don't really love i don't know i don't know again with the whole um like if you take like kurt cobain with his ly- with his lyrics 
leaves he does he refuses to answer any questions about his lyrics because yeah. he knows the ambiguity has to stay there for it to be a classic I, that's how i feel i feel because i think he purposely painted himself as the edgy artist when he knew downright that he wanted to be that person and that would propel him to greatness chris that's my Selich, uh, the bassist from nirvana has come out many times in interviews and talked about how kurt wanted to be famous i don't know what happened there <laughs> what's going on with his image because i'm thinking if he ever came out one day and some of the lyrics like take the lyrics from uh, smells like teen spirit if he said i meant everything i said literally the art side of it just <laughs> drops away you know because it's the simplest of lyrics yeah. but um and then the 27 club right that's yeah but i think yeah i think no i don't think i've i i, I don't think i've lo- like come to not like any music i've just come to recognize that it was like it was complementary to a phase in my life mm-hmm. but i don't uh, i don't like detest anything now in fact i'm actually grateful that every uh, like every piece of music that helped me through a certain phase in my life helped me and i'm happy to leave it behind and leave that version of myself and the music yeah. there with it i'll never i'll actually in fact always love the music for doing that for me mm-hmm. but never mm-hmm. just go back on it so i don't feel like there's anything i hate now but uh definitely things i don't listen to anymore like i did like i used to yeah mm. A lot of that being like the I don't listen to as much classic rock as I used to, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Still a healthy respect for it in the distance. A huge, huge respect for it. Yeah, yeah. you don't want to deny that you had a phase. You know, that's that would just be weird and wrong anyway. So yeah, Yeah, that would (laughs) then you'd have to justify analytically why you no longer like it. You'd Mm -hmm. rather just say you were in a phase. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. (laughs) So yeah. Well, what about you? What do you hate? Uh, probably nothing musically, but I remember reading Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky and I just fell in love with it at the time and then I got completely over it like six months later thinking that was not as deep as I thought it would be. It was, but like I thought it was going to be like life-changing and it just <laughs> only changed me for one week and I was like, oh, okay, no, that, that was impactful, but not like t- <laughs> life-changing. So, I mean, I sort of had this like... I started lamenting Dostoevsky a little bit. It's like, what's this reputation? It's undeserved. And then I read The Brothers Karamazov and it was sort of like a similar feeling. It's like, good, but not, I don't understand the whole ooh-ah-ness about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially with other great writers from that time. It's, yeah. Probably no musical examples there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Moving into the current contemporary, um, like, hyper commercialized music mm. space especially with a lot of the rap um musicians and uh the pop musicians now it feels like because it feels like in the past when you look at the classical pieces music was something to admire enjoy and now it seems like something complementary to your alcohol and drug use mm-hmm. in many cases um and that's and that's it like that's where you leave it do you do you find that to be the case or is that again just us not being grateful for the current time that we live in because we seem to do that a lot as well. Everyone always did that, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Th- there's always been commercial music yeah. and more artsy music. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Even but in the 18th century. I guess a striking difference, though. Like we mentioned Mozart before. He, when people went to watch, what listen to one of his works, they wanted to see new things that they haven't mm-hmm. heard before. Whereas right now we have an affinity for, oh yeah, that song's catchy. Put it on and put that yeah. on my repeat playlist. Do you know what I mean? Like the so, sort of appetite for novelty do you notice a difference with that um maybe but i i think part of it is because we can have that repetition now mm. so easily 
because we don't have you don't have to hire a string quartet in if you want to hear a string quartet you can just yeah. put it on Spotify. Um, yeah. Well, so with yeah. with the invention of recording, now that we have the ability to rehear things, we've learned that we like to rehear things. Yeah, yeah. And to you, does that take away from the whole uh, spectacle of it? That back, like now we just play, press uh, replay on a digital recording, whereas back then you had to have the entire mm-hmm. thing in front of you for it to be going. Uh, it probably makes us take some things for granted more, which isn't necessarily a good thing. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, it certainly makes my life easier as a musicologist because yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. I've got all of the stuff I need to study just easily accessible. Mm. Yeah, and someone from South Africa can listen to Mozart. Uh-huh. They don't have That's to wild, travel right? like yeah. to see. Yeah. Never before in history have we had access to everything ever. At the press of a button, mm. it's crazy. Yeah, it's in, it's incredible and taken for granted and everything in between. But you you feel like the current situation that we're uh, outlining here, where there's there's commercial side, artsy side, there's the side that's taken for granted. It's always that's always existed that sort of st- setup. Yeah, to some extent, I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. The and the it's shifted a little bit. So going back to Mozart again, he writes operas, but he also writes dance music. Yeah, music that's meant to be just consumed. Yes. Um, the difference, I guess, is that it's it's the same composer doing it, whereas now people tend to specialize more. Mm. Yeah. Like you produce yeah. Choose all pick. pop music or you produce all fancy avant-garde music. Yeah. Pick a side. Yeah. Is that because the, although the same concept exists or the same structure of the division between commercial and art, not to create a false division, but the commercial and art, um, now to be a commercial success, you have to be much more of a commercial success than you had to be back in the days. So you really have to pick a side because there's just not enough yeah, resources. More, more competition. Yeah. 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 So I guess the upside of the highly specialized pockets throughout culture would be that you get a higher standard in whatever field you're talking about because everyone, I guess, healthy competition. Yeah. The downside being it takes more of your life to get to the top. You have to give up more. Yeah. 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 And the, the kind of patronage that musicians could count on a few centuries ago doesn't exist nearly as much now. So if you want to make a living as a musician, you have to make stuff that sells a lot, or you have to have a different job to support what you're doing, yeah. or you have to be in a university yeah. or yeah, a, I, an institution. That, that, that's what I was actually sort of getting at before with the whole uh, specific pockets of society sort of dedicated to mm-hmm kinds of people like the the sort of aristocratic tutoring argument where marcus aurelius's um you know teacher was the teacher of rome his this Mm -hmm. teacher was this teacher of rome and like sort of having a high degree of customized and specializedness right from the from the get-go and that breeding some sort of greatness but Mm. yeah exposure is also obviously highly important yeah i mean how do you see that like if the trend is that um now to be a commercial success you have to be a big commercial you have to be in front of a lot of people now and or like you say you need to work in a university or work a side job where does this take music in the going forward in the future um are we gonna obviously now already we're missing out on a lot of talent because you can't just express yourself (laughs) willingly now you have to express yourself within a certain uh, yeah economical format yeah, Yeah. yeah yeah So um, how does that, like, if the trend carries on, what does that look like in the future in your eyes? Well, at the moment, it doesn't look very good. Yeah. Because our systems of patronage, if you call it that, like universities, like the 
orchestras like um, state-funded radio, those are all shrinking. Mm. So there are fewer opportunities to be anything other than commercial. Yeah. Um, so either we need, well, if, if we educate people to move beyond just the commercial, then that helps because yeah. it widens the field. Yeah. Uh, but if we don't do that, then we lose out on a lot of the work that can really make us think yeah. about, about life through music, like yeah. we were talking about earlier. Yeah, but we seem to not really care about thinking so much anymore. No. And uh, <laughs> just uh, <laughs> Okay, it's getting too doom and gloom. <laughs> yeah. What, yeah. what are you guys most optimistic about in terms of the future music landscape? Uh, me, uh, Spotify, fifteen ninety nine a month. It's pretty cool. Like <laughs> no, in terms of what it can do for us as a society. <laughs> but I agree with that. I can't get over the fact that I have access to everything for fifteen dollars a month. That's crazy. Not not really everything. It's only the things that have been digitized. Yes, there's still heaps true. of stuff out there that only exists on on LPs or I see. cassettes or things like that. Right, but we have a lot of stuff. This is yeah. why we have the expert on. <laughs> yeah. Because we would have gotten away with saying everything there yeah. in the last episode. And then bashed in the comments. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, what, so what, yeah, what's so the question? What are you guys most optimistic about going forward? Hmm. On a grand scale, you know, like yeah. for what it can do for us. I, I think that even though the university education sectors are shrinking there are a lot more a more variety of voices coming through uh, in all types of music but especially in classical music um, you don't have to be an old white guy anymore mm. uh, so that's a good thing Pe audiences are demanding a variety of voices coming at them which gives more opportunity for people coming up which is very which is a good thing um The because of the access to material, the level of skill has been going up. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. because of the more exposure, if you have the resources to be exposed, more mm. exposure teaches you a lot about playing or singing or whatever you're doing musically. Right. Yeah. Gives more examples. So overall, a rising standard, would you say, on the technical mm -hmm. front? Yeah. Yeah. I, I I tend to enjoy the rising standard on the technical front, but at sometimes it feels like we um, go. Sometimes people feel like technicality is all they have to have, and so they just add as many notes as possible, and you end up having these hair metal guitar solos that just sometimes I don't even want to listen to, you know. So it's like, uh, but not to get doom and gloom again. <laughs> optimistic, I think. Um, like the, even just to be unrelated to music, the fact that we can make a podcast. Um, and post it to YouTube and mm. YouTube and the discoverability through like short form content and that kind of stuff now is much, the possibilities are much greater. The same goes for musicians. You don't need to be endorsed by this big record label mm -hmm. to post a reel on Instagram and potentially have a, a million people view it and like it and go from there. So um, the discoverability of the average Joe, not the average Joe, the person with average Joe resources mm -hmm. um, is now... <clears throat> much better yeah so i'm excited to see who comes out in that way yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's more of a free-for-all and something good normally comes out of the chaos something yeah what i feel like we have lost though is the the mystery that we used to have for these big 
like big art figures like we take like robert plant um mm. or these big rock stars you didn't get to see their instagram stories and <laughs> see what they're doing in their house you just saw him when he came on stage and he said goodbye yeah. to you and yeah. that's and then it he just and left <laughs> the country right yeah, no, yeah and now you can just go like visit his house for like 300 dollars. it's it's crazy it's just but yeah, no, you're supposed to end on an optimistic note, so uh, <laughs> yes, go yeah. on. Um, well, I guess just a sort of final wrap-up question, unless there was something else you had as no, well. But I think go for the final one, because our hardware is pretty limited here with the recording stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, an alien race <laughs> visits us on Earth. You can only show them one music piece to represent all of our human history. What do you show them? What are you most proud of? both of you and we'll go to the musicologist the, for this one the, <laughs> the first reaction is Monteverdi's opera La Coronazione di Popea because it has everything about life and love and sorrow and misery and hatred and everything wow and I need to listen to it I don't think I've and that it, was your specialization as well yeah I don't I really I, if I hadn't written a doctorate on it I would probably say something else but yeah. um, it's very good is that <laughs> yeah. doctor? is the paper you wrote accessible online to read mm -hmm. and stuff okay. yeah Monteverdi on the modern stage Oxford yeah. University definitely read that definitely and listen to listen to it I haven't actually yeah. listened to it so mm. but that ties back into how you were saying the more you analyze it the more you actually learn to love it because if yeah. you just looked at it mm. if you just listen to it maybe you wouldn't be saying the same thing mm. yeah and it would probably spark some sort of want to learn more and more that you don't know as well in general just like yeah. this could unfold even more if I just knew what this meant, you know, maybe yeah. I'd see it in a greater light. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about yourself? I have no clue. It's not enough time <laughs> to prepare for that <laughs> question. Not necessarily music then. How about something else? Just the first what thing that I, comes to mind. Cause what do as, I soon show as, we, as soon as we end this, we're going to be like, Oh, You'll I should have said things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. What do you, what do you show them? You show them a baby. A baby, okay. a baby. I'll show them a baby. Yeah. Show them we're harmless and... Yeah, yeah. take the baby. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I have no no clue. I'll, I'll show them, hey there, Delilah. That, that song. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> that's well, it. That's, that's my answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because, you, um, yeah. What's, your, what's yours? Oh, damn. <laughs> uh, so it'll give them a philosophy book. <laughs> <laughs> Um, probably just no I'd show them the latest Tool album that it, that is life itself okay and then the aliens will leave out of yeah. fear yeah they won't like it and then they'll go because it's so niche and then we have our planet back to ourselves good good plan good practical plan yeah. you see you might make them fall in love a bit too much with the human <laughs> yeah. species and maybe end up taking it for themselves yeah well, well yeah no. thank you so thank much thank you for so much joining for coming us. on this has it's been a serious privilege to have someone like you on and um yeah i really really appreciate it and i remember your teaching style in particular so thank you so much oh you're welcome yeah thank you that's it episode that's four it. thank you for watching